0: Hey, just a heads up, this episode contains graphic language and is not suitable for children. Okay, here's the show. If you watched The Daily Show in the Jon Stewart era, you may remember a character called the deranged millionaire. He had a mustache, glasses, wore three-piece suits. We all agree that wealthy Americans are the best Americans. Well, not none. <laughs> Not everybody agrees with
1: that. Well, everyone I know does. And Mitt Romney was the wealthiest American or, or at least the wealthiest who is willing to touch your hands and lift your babies. I mean Romney was a rich man and he wanted to be president. What more could he have done to earn your vote? I don't even know what's happening with this country anymore, John. Oh. <laughs> Did you just uh, did you just blow your nose with a hundred dollar bill? I can't use a fifty. John Grant's beard is too scratchy.
0: <laughs> the deranged millionaire's real name is John Hodgman. He also played the Daily Show's resident expert. And these characters, they were both elitists. So elitist, they're basically villains.
1: They think that the world is one way, uh, and they're acting correctly in that world. But in fact, the world is a different way, and they're acting badly.
0: The oblivious, elitist villain. This has become John's trademark when he's acting and, as I learned, in real life, too. During our interview, he would sometimes just slip into character, start speaking in a formal, braggadocious way. And now I realize I think I've never used the word braggadocious before. This is The Longest Shortest Time, I'm Hillary Frank, and today on the show, John shares the origin story of how he became a villain and how that's impacted his family, though he's very protective of his kids.
1: I cannot tell you my children's names because I uh, do not wish them to get famous on my back. I worked moderately hard for this fame. I'm not just gonna give it away to them, though I love them very much. Uh, traditionally in my work, I refer to my daughter pseudonymously as Hajmina and my son as Hajmanilo. But uh, to avoid being twee, I will just refer to them as our daughter and our son. Okay, great. Not your and my daughter and son.
0: No, no. My wife and I. No. Right. Yeah. Have a daughter and son. See what I mean about the highfalutin speech? You'll hear stuff like that throughout this episode. But you'll also hear a surprisingly sincere John Hodgman. He's going to really open up. Except, you know, when he won't. John grew up in Brookline, Massachusetts. His parents were both from working-class families, the first in their families to go to college. And they worked their way into the upper-middle class.
1: My dad became a business executive in Boston. My mom became a registered nurse, primarily administrative, less clinical work. Uh, my mom was the oldest of six siblings. There were lots of times when they lived in very close quarters in a row house in northeast Philadelphia. And my mom, as if to overcompensate for her uh, for her close, dense Catholic upbringing, decided to have only one child and live in a house with uh, 19 rooms.
0: And, Nineteen? Yeah. What were all those rooms for?
1: Well, there was the kitchen. There was the living room. But then there was the living room we used. To watch television in and eat in, we almost never would sit in the dining room, which came pre-equipped with a incredibly long dining table that was like a joke of a of a long like dining table that you would see in a cartoon about rich people, where you would sit, one person would sit at one end, and the other person would sit at the other end, and it would take a week to walk down to the other
0: end. Right? John even had a room specifically for practicing his instruments, clarinet and viola. His parents rented out a lot of their extra rooms to students and people who worked at the hospital where his mom was a nurse. One guy lived in a whole suite of rooms, like his own little apartment. He moved out when John was in high school.
1: Then I announced to my parents, "I'm in high school now. I deserve an apartment of my own." <laughs> and I and I and I decorated it myself. I took apart my old bunk beds and I turned them into sort of an L-shaped sectional sofa. I got an old uh, steamer trunk that was my coffee table, and I put an old black and white TV on there and. That's where I would pass my time of an evening just watching TV's bloopers and practical jokes and black and white on television and, you know, swirling a a snifter of whole milk and just murdering a box of Triscuits, a real sophisticate.
0: Teenage John did not realize he was a mere parody of sophistication, but grown-up John figured it out, and he built an entire career parodying that parody, creating version upon version of oblivious elitists— it all started in the early 2000s on net. John had a column there where he played an authoritative elitist who gave horrible advice. That column morphed into a fake almanac, John wrote called The Areas of My Expertise. And that book is what made Jon Stewart recruit him to be a contributor on The Daily Show. I'm joined by our resident expert, John Hodgman. John, thank you so much. Thank
1: you. We're
0: delighted, as always.
1: Thank you for contacting my agent. Ben. All right. You're very that. welcome, John. Uh, we, we've heard a lot of this term now, spiritual advisor, not a, a phrase, really, that I'd heard much before. Oh, yes. Well, that's probably because uh, you're godless, John. <laughs> right. Well, no, I mean, not. I mean, I have a spiritual foundation. No, you're, you're godless. <laughs> Let me use an analogy you might understand. A spiritual advisor is like a personal trainer for the soul. An ordinary pastor is good enough for your work-a-day Johnny church-pail. But a president needs special spiritual attention. The president does because of, of the weight that they carry, I assume, on, on their shoulders. Well, yes, that
0: and the, the sin that builds up on their thighs and buttocks. John was shocked to become a regular on TV. He had recently quit his job as a literary agent to be a freelance writer. His wife, who he met back when he was a whole milk swirling, trisket murdering teen, was a high school teacher. They were living in New York, struggling to make ends meet.
1: We basically were crafting our exit strategy because we couldn't, we, you know, we had we had uh, two very young children. We couldn't make a life here on what either of us were making. We were going to move away.
0: But then, a few months after he started on The Daily Show, John got another surprise call, this time to audition for a commercial. He got flown to L.A. to try out, and then a second time for callbacks.
1: And I thought, well, that's the end of that. I'm not going to get this job. Everyone in the world is auditioning for it. And then they called me, or my agent called me and said, they want to know if you will fly out to audition a third time, specifically tomorrow morning. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. No. I mean, I, I can't fly out tomorrow morning. I have to pick up my daughter from preschool.
0: For his daughter's entire life, John had worked from home. He spent most afternoons with her. He was the go-to parent when she got sick. And when this call came in, his son was just an infant.
1: I'm not a 20-year-old actor who can throw everything away just to chase a role. I'm a whole human being who's got a life and a career, and I'm not going to do that. So I guess I'm going to say no. And then I got a call back from the agent saying, well, they want to know if you will fly out the day after tomorrow. I'm like, aren't you hearing what I'm saying? I can't can't be away from my family. And then she's like, well, let me finish. Will you fly out the day after tomorrow if they give you the job? And by the way, here's what they're going to pay you. And by the way, what they pay you for a national ad campaign is money that was unimaginable to me as a freelance magazine journalist. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that as terrifying and hard and disruptive as it would be for me and my family, I had a moral obligation to say yes. What's the moral obligation? A moral obligation to my family to say yes, because this was money that was going to be very useful in terms of paying for educations and securing a life for ourselves.
0: Hello, I'm a Mac. And I'm a PC. Yeah, so John got the job.
1: He's You okay? No, I'm not okay. I have that virus that's going
0: around. Oh, yeah. John was the perfect PC, yet another oblivious elitist villain, who also, I guess, had a habit of blowing his nose on television, just like the deranged millionaire.
1: I think I got a crash. Hey, if you feel like that'll help.
0: Apple aired 66 of these ads, which skyrocketed John into true wealth. He was suddenly an actual member of the elite, and he began to rake in even more Hollywood dough, getting typecast as nerdy TV villains.
1: So did you always want to play the oboe?
0: Well, when I was five, we went to this Christmas recital, and there was this girl, and she was playing the oboe, and I turned to my mom, and I said, Mommy... I'm on one of those little black sticks. (laughs) Let's see,
1: on Mozart in the Jungle, I was initially the mentor to Lola Kirk's character, who who is a a young woman who is striving to be a classical musician, and um, gave her some very good life advice about not feeling like an imposter in life. You figured something out about yourself, something deep, Hmm? like a math prodigy does or a chess genius. You knew it. And then it turned out I was an imposter. I was a con man who simply wanted to get her into bed and uh, attempted to seduce her by appearing naked in her bed. Oh, my God! Wearing nothing but an oboe. Don't do anything you'd be ashamed of
0: I'm not the one hiding my penis under an oboe.
1: I needed to leave something to the imagination.
0: Then there was a movie that did not get made, and John had turned down the role anyway. So I'm very sorry I can't play a clip of this for you.
1: My role was a guy who kept pregnant women you know, prisoner in his basement and would take their babies and then sell them. And I read this thing. It was the first time I had been Sounds offered— Sounds like a good business. <laughs> <laughs> I, Just for kidding. The, for the record, I am against human <laughs> trafficking of all kinds. <laughs> not perfectly clear. <laughs> they didn't even ask me to audition. It was a straight offer. They knew I was the right guy for this role. And I was—you know, they had only sent me certain parts of the script— for me to evaluate before I accepted the role. And uh, I was like, can I see the whole script? Like, I want to know why you thought of me. And I went back to the initial character description, which is where they say what it looks like. And it just said, man, 30s, wears glasses. I'm like, oh, all right. I said, That's part of being a glasses wearer in Hollywood. You're, You're a creep. You're a villain.
0: So in order to play these creeps, you had to be away from your family a lot. You had to go to L.A., travel. Yeah,
1: and I refused to move to L.A., Because my family is, you know, deeply embedded in New York. My wife teaches high school here. My kids go to school here. Our kids go to school here. So I was flying back and forth across the country quite a bit and initially quite happily because I loved doing the job and the production was obligated to fly me uh, first class by contract. So it was very luxe and fancy and good. And once I was was in L.A., I realized, oh, being an actor means like you are treated like a child. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you are not trusted to move yourself around you know you could wander off at any time and shut down the production your your emotions everyone's trying to ward off a tantrum from you because it'll shut down production and you know my even though i was working 14 hour days in a in a new career that i had no understanding of how, you know i was learning on the job it was incredibly stressful it was also incredibly relaxing because I just had no responsibilities to any other humans but to get my body to where it needed to be on camera.
0: While John was in LA being coddled like a child, his wife took on the responsibilities of their humans. But John swears this caused zero friction between them. I pressed him on this a couple of times, and all he's willing to share is that she was happy for their unexpected financial security. John also says that, to his surprise, His kids didn't really react to his coming and going for years. He figures this is because by elementary school, they had fully mastered the concept of object permanence. Sure, dad was away for long stretches, but they knew he'd always come back. It almost didn't matter what anyone else thought, though. John had become hooked on fame. If
1: you are known for something that you've made, that's a wonderful feeling, right? It's a great feeling for people to come up and say, I like what you do. Um, it's, it's very gratifying, you know, to be seen. Mm-hmm. Most people aren't seen. Most people do really, really important work in their jobs or in their, in their families, and they're not recognized on the street or even in their own homes. It's a good—it's inherently and intrinsically a good feeling. People treat you nicely— and, and like a child, though. And like, a, yeah, well, that's great, too. <laughs> <laughs> like a child with real power.
0: <laughs> in L.A., John would often stay in a fancy hotel where he routinely saw the biggest celebrities in the world doing mundane things. Charlize Theron reading a book. Benedict Cumberbatch crawling under a table to find his credit card. He overheard Jessica Lang joking about menopause over dinner. It was as if he and all these other famouses were loafing around at home together, and they were his siblings, his secret family. It was thrilling. But John also missed his real family. Once he was shooting a show that kept him in L.A. for weeks on end, but there was a break coming up, exactly during his kids' spring break. He would spend that week with them at
1: home. But then I got offered another job on a different show, and that was working opposite Patrick Stewart, and I was going to say yes to that.
0: But saying yes to that meant saying no to going home. So John asked his family to come to L.A. They rented a house, lived together for a full week, and they went to Disneyland, got a VIP tour.
1: And my friend Mark McConville, uh, who was a a cast member at the time at Disneyland, was walking around with us and, you know, giving us some behind-the-scenes facts. And he mentioned casually that there's a room that they referred to as Disney Jail. And my son and I were like, what is Disney Jail? (laughs) Is it is it themed? Like, is it an actual jail cell in the back of the fake police station on Main Street? And he's like, no, it's just a room where people who get too drunk go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, you know, sneak in alcohol or drugs or get out of hand in some way. Uh-huh. And my son said to me, Dad, have you ever been to Disney jail? <laughs> and at first, that was a funny question. But then I realized it had deep implications. And I'm like, what— what what do you think is happening when I'm away? <laughs> like, I know you know that I'm going to work on this show, but do you think on my downtime I'm just going to Disneyland without you? What kind of monster do you think I am? It's <laughs> like, well, I'm going to go to Disneyland by myself. Sorry, kids. And drinking
0: a little too well, much. Well, yeah, and then that's right. And
1: then, and then just going crazy. <laughs> just like, drinking and getting thrown in Disney jail all the time? Like what? That was kind of a really, uh, you know, a, a sobering moment of like, oh, yeah, he— He's gotten this idea that I'm out here on this great fun adventure, getting thrown in Disney jail without him. But it wasn't until my son turned 10 or 11 that I began to really see it taking an emotional toll on my not being there. And it was very rough.
0: When John would be getting ready to leave, his son would shut down into what John describes as a low emotion sleep mode. When John came back, his son would be quiet for days. John says his son's sense of object permanence had given way to a sense of impermanence. He worried that John was never coming back. John says his daughter took it differently. She was 13 at the time, a mature 13, asking for her own apartment, just like John did when he was a kid. His son, though, his son had him wondering whether the fame and money was worth it. While John was reckoning with that question, he was shooting a show called Married. After two seasons... It did not get renewed, which was sad for John.
1: But I also felt a real sense of relief and um, and a desire to, or a, a sense of, like, I have to be here. So long as my children are still in a phase where I matter in their lives, I need to be based in New York and really not go away. And that meant I had to turn down opportunities, and opportunities kind of withered for me a little while.
0: John stopped getting invited to awards parties— The greeter at his beloved hotel no longer said, welcome home, when he arrived. He decided he was done being a pretend villain, at least till his kids got to college. But when we come back, John discovers he's been a real-life villain pretty much since he was born. Stay with us. We are back with John Hodgman. Ever since John stopped traveling to LA to be on TV, he's focused on his writing. He's published two books in the last couple of years. The first is called Vacation Land, the new one is Medallion Status.
1: Medallion Status is a book of true stories from my life, first person essays that are funny and sometimes sad and always incredibly profound and enlightening about what it is like to be a very famous minor television personality and all of the secret rooms and first-class lounges and exclusive parties that even the minorist of fame admits you to and what it feels like to be slowly kicked out of those rooms one by one until you realize you're no longer as famous as even the least famous Corgi on Instagram.
0: John writes about what he saw and who he met in those secret rooms, but he also talks about the privilege he had just to be there. Privilege is one of the things John writes about most sincerely in his work. I'm probably the best at it. Probably. But John was not the best at recognizing his privilege as a teen. There's a story in his book that demonstrates just how unaware he was.
1: Yeah. I was 19 years old. I was studying uh, at Yale University, which is an accredited four-year college in Southern Connecticut. And I was... Interested in the writer Jorge Luis Borges, who is from Argentina, Buenos Aires.
0: The Spanish department was offering a travel grant to students in Latin American studies. John was not one of those students, but he really wanted to go to Buenos Aires. So he wrote a kick-ass essay and won the grant. But on his way to Argentina, he missed a connection and got rebooked on a flight that was super delayed. Most people had booked other flights by the time he boarded the plane. Coach was almost empty.
1: And I realized that I just walked through a completely empty business class area. And I thought I would ask, can I sit there? (laughs) And to my surprise, the flight attendant did not immediately say no, (laughs) which is what they're supposed to say. Yeah. She didn't say no. She said, I don't think so. She said, because I'm not sure we have enough first class meals on board to serve you dinner. And I said, I don't care about the dinner. I just want to sit in that nice chair. And she said, I'll see what I can do. (laughs) And to my, what was not amazing to me then, but is amazing to me now, she came back and she said, sure.
0: The flight attendant did find an extra first class meal, complete with metal flatware and cloth napkins. John suspects it may have been the meal she was saving for herself. She served John some nuts, they were warm. Another flight attendant brought him whiskey in an actual glass. John sat in his cushy seat, convinced that this was luxury he deserved, that he had earned. I want to have you read a passage from the book that's related to the story you just told. So can you open to page 30?
1: Yes. People who are listening know there are at least 30 pages in this book, so (laughs) maybe more.
0: Spoiler alert.
1: Yeah. Later that year, I was flying with my mom and dad from Boston to some other city. There was a delay, and I said, this was great news. I told my dad, now's your chance. Go tell them at the desk that we all want to sit in first class now. This works. They do it all the time. My dad didn't do it. And I'm ashamed to recall that I thought in that moment that my dad's decision was not based on experience, decency, and non-assholism. I thought it was cowardice. I'm sorry, dad.
0: You now seem hyper-aware of your privilege. What changed?
1: Being called out on Twitter. Um, I also have to give credit to John Roderick, another very insightful straight white man (laughs) with whom I uh, spend a lot of time traveling on airplanes. He's a musician uh, and a storyteller, and we traveled a lot together and performed a lot together. And one time uh, we were in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I was telling stories about the time that my family and I spend in Maine and just go ahead and tell them these stories because they're just stories from my real life, talking about renting houses in Maine and, um, you know, how, how I humiliated myself in front of the, the people who came to clean the house and stuff like that. I didn't even think twice about these stories. And then after I finished, John Roderick got up to sort of back announce me and introduce his own set playing music. And he goes, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the privilege comedy of John Hodgman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Right. Right. Not everyone not everyone rents a house in Maine. Uh-huh. Not everyone works on television and, you know, can afford such a
0: thing. The clarity John felt after Roderick called him out is pretty remarkable. Here he was, a man who had been making fun of his obliviously elite teenage self for over a decade, only to realize that all that time, before that time even, he had been obliviously privileged. So getting
1: shocked out of... Getting shocked out of comfort has been a real gift, you know, to me because it helps me understand the world as it works. Do you talk to your kids about privilege? Uh, I don't need to talk to our daughter about it. She is super duper political and has read lots more than I have on this subject. And I talk to my son to some degree about it. He's aware of this concept as well. I I am. I talk i I talk, and I would say my wife and I both talked to our son about it because he is a a white male, currently identifying as male, and who knows whether he uh, what you know who he's gonna love in his life uh but he'll definitely walk through life being perceived of as a white male and um i but the the main the main focus is I need i I really force him to be careful about YouTube. <laughs> I feel like it's my obligation, my main worry and concern and job as a dad is to keep my son out of the Mm alt-right, you know, and it's a real problem,
0: you know. So how do you do that?
1: So one thing I did was I I gave him two pieces of homework that I hope he has done. I, I know that he's aware of both of them and, you know, you can't force kids to do to do stuff. But on this regard, I asked him to read a tweet thread by a woman I don't know named Joanna Schroeder. S-C-H-R-O-E-D-E-R.
0: Right here, John pulled out his phone to find the thread he was talking about. And the thread starts,
1: Do you have white teenage sons? Listen up. I've been watching my boys' online behavior and noticed social media and vloggers are actively laying groundwork in white teens to turn them into alt-right white supremacists. And she tells her story about how her own white teenage son started using terms that seemed very coded and clearly emerged from this meme-happy 4chan, 8chan, nothing matters just for the lulls, racism is provocative world that then leads to more actual political activation. It is a massive issue, I think, for, for anybody who's got white teenage sons because those algorithms in YouTube are directing people directly to white supremacy Propaganda.
0: YouTube wasn't doing this on purpose, but they've been letting it happen. Over the summer, YouTube announced that they would start removing videos promoting extremist ideas and hate speech, like white supremacy, misogyny, and anti-Semitism, and that they would alter the algorithm to recommend fewer extreme videos. But you may have noticed the internet isn't exactly fixed yet.
1: And there are lots and lots and lots of dudes who are running websites and publications who are making a ton of money off of this sad, mad, white dude on the internet industrial complex right now. It's a a scam, and it's obviously very dangerous for our country, for the way we interact with each other, for our mental health, for our kids' mental health. Uh, It is a big problem. It's a big issue. And I'll also ask my son to read as a second piece of homework. It's not read, actually. It's just watch a TED Talk. It's a short one by Cindy Gallup. Uh, who's a feminist and an advertising executive and the founder of a website called Make Love Not Porn. And her talk is all about how she... (laughs) It's one of the greatest openings to any TED Talk of all time. I saw it live in the room. That's one of the secret rooms that I've gotten to go to. And one of the adventures I had was getting to watch her give this talk where she gets up on stage and she's a mature woman and she goes...
0: I date younger men, predominantly men in their 20s. And when I date younger men, I have sex with younger men.
1: How can you start a talk with a mic drop? <laughs> the greatest. And she described that, you know, in her years of having sex with men who are younger than her, she started to notice a complete misunderstanding of what sex is. And it all happens because of porn online. And basically, I don't know how graphic you can be on this we can podcast, be but, you know, she's like...
0: My concern is particularly with a young girl whose boyfriend wants to come on her face... She does not want him to come on her face, but hardcore porn has taught her that all men love coming on women's faces, all women love having their faces come on, and therefore she must let him come on her face and she must pretend to like it.
1: She's like, So I've started this website called Make Love Not Porn?
0: I am unveiling makelovenotporn.com. This is a website that posts the myths of hardcore porn and balances them with the reality.
1: And I was like, that's an incredible message that I need the teens in my life to hear. By my my teens in my life, I mean our children. I'm not going to high schools and handing out pamphlets.
0: That would be weird. Coming up, John and I are going to talk about our daughters. Not our daughters. You know what I mean. Don't go away.
1: Say advertisement. Advertisement. Good job.
0: We are back with John Hodgman, and I want to return to John's childhood. Now, I'm going to play you something that John says a lot. He says this in interviews, in performances, in his writing, and he said it to me, too.
1: I was an only child, which is to say a member of the Super Smart Afraid of Conflict Narcissist Club.
0: It's a good line, right? It always gets a laugh, and I can totally hear why it's funny, but it also makes me bristle a little bit. I have an only child, and it is the thing I've been judged for most as a parent. By other parents, by colleagues, by my dental hygienist, by complete strangers who started talking to me at a concert. So many people have told me forcefully that I'm screwing my kid up by not giving her a sibling. And so the super smart, afraid of conflict, narcissist club line kind of rings my alarm bells, as if John is judging his own parents' choice to not add more humans to their family. John says, as a kid, he really loved being an only child. It made him feel like a grown up, like in the best ways. But as a teen, there were also some downsides.
1: It was my terror of being a, of a my terror of being a teenager. I was actually truly a terrified conform. Like, I didn't want to experiment. I didn't want to kiss anybody, hug anybody, do any drugs, take any drinks.
0: And you pin this on being
1: an only child? I think so, yeah. Because I had no siblings to fight with over resources, such as toys or bedrooms or whatever. I think that I had a terror of any kind of meaningful confrontation, whether that was getting into a fight or getting in trouble or falling in love.
0: I want to challenge the notion that uh, your fears of conflict and, as you say, kissing and hugging come from only childness. I have an only child, and she is way less afraid of conflict and kissing people than I ever was. Sure. I just wonder, like you know, sometimes we have these like quote unquote coat hanger issues, you know, where we we pin everything in our lives on this one issue. Right. Is it possible that these are just character traits of yours that you would have had if you had siblings? I,
1: I suppose so. I uh, I I come with certain baked-in neuroses that, you know, are, could be an accident of biology and then could be produced by other, you know, societal factors and personal factors that are beyond only childhood, being an only, that is to say. But i uh, I'm not afraid of confrontation now. You're wrong. I believe in what I said. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I every child is different, right? And I certainly am not suggesting that having an only child is a wrong thing to do or that or that any only child would have the fate of neurosis that I did. I mean, I think you know you, you have to be thoughtful about having an only child in the same way you have to be thoughtful about having multiple children and how how they interact with you and with each other, sure. And good for, your, uh, good for your daughter. Yeah. For being braver than me. Daughters
0: <laughs> usually are. That afraid of conflict neurosis John's talking about, that's hard-baked into me as well, even though I have a brother. And something I've learned is you can spend your entire life avoiding conflict, but once you have kids, there is no hiding from it.
1: And I think that the experience of having conflicts and sometimes very loud conflicts, sometimes very emotionally intense conflicts, and then being able to sigh and shake them off and realize that you're each the same person and that you still love them and they still love you. That is a big part of learning that conflict isn't fatal, which is what I had to do. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this happened, that I had—I began to have this insight as, you know, I, I went through these stages of growing into a family. Also, you also grow older and you realize that there are things that are fatal and Mm -hmm. those matter more. (laughs) Like, you know, it's like lots of times realizing it's not going to kill you to stand up for yourself is great, you know.
0: Is there a specific instance of conflict as a spouse or parent that you feel comfortable sharing that helped you to learn that conflict isn't fatal?
1: I mean, look, we've had some hard fights, as everyone does. And our daughter... Has a fault. And that is that she cannot accept being wrong. And that is a fault that I struggled with for a long, long time. And accepting that you can be wrong, that you did a wrong thing, uh, or you treated someone in a bad way, is... It took a long time for me to be able to do that and not say but actually this is the reason I did this you know like it's like oh no I just the reason doesn't matter I was bad to you or I said that I said something that hurt you and that's the that's the one that's the, the that's where the most of the fights come from right now mhm you know yeah along the lines of you're not entitled to treat us like garbage you don't treat anyone else in your life this way I don't know why you feel entitled to treat us like garbage but it has to stop
0: This is you speaking to your daughter?
1: Yeah. Maybe it's her speaking to me. Let's leave it.
0: Let's leave it. (laughs) (laughs) Ambiguous. Let's leave it ambiguous. What John's talking about here is, I think, a top fear for most parents. Those dark moments when you feel like a villain in your own family. Before John left, I asked him if there was anything he wanted to say that I didn't ask him. And he said,
1: No, this was a very very deep and uh, probing interview. (laughs) And to quote the Mountain Goats, I'm grateful for the attention.
0: Which feels to me like the perfect mix of sincere and elitist. We have a link to John's super entertaining book, Medallion Status, on our website, LongestShortestTime.com, in the post for this episode. That's episode 215. You will find links to his other great books there as well. This episode was produced by me, Hilary Frank, with Jackie Sajiko and Elizabeth Nakano. We are edited, as usual, by Peter Clowney, and this week also by Tracy Samuelson. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Andrea Christenstotter. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov. We get editorial support from Antonia Akatunde, Amory Baldonado, Rekha Murthy, and Julia Wang. Next week on The Longest Shortest Time... A police officer is on her way back home after a long night shift. And all of a sudden, just the weirdest sound out of the darkness, out of this fog, you hear this baby crying. We will reveal the story of this mysterious fog baby, plus a couple of other treasures we've been dying to share with you. Do not miss this episode. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time on Stitcher or wherever you're listening right now.